In her series, Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling presents a story that is ultimately about those who are righteous and those who are wicked, or those who are blessed and those who are wicked. The representative for the righteous would be Harry Potter himself, if any of you have ever read this. And the representative for the wicked would be Lord Voldemort. And so you have this setup of kind of this good evil kind of thing going on. Well, throughout her story, she shows us the characteristics of these two individuals. For Harry, he's loving and he's caring and he he is kind and he seeks the good of others. He considers himself to be blessed to have all that he does and he's thankful for it. And it all just kind of falls upon him. On the other hand, Lord Voldemort is someone who's filled with hate. He seeks power and control at the expense of others and he finds satisfaction in seeing others suffering and in seeing others who are in pain. I see the story of Harry Potter a little bit in Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, we see characteristics of those who are blessed and we see characteristics of those who are wicked. But unlike the Harry Potter series, we see that there is a promise made to both of these sets of people. There's a promise to the blessed and there's a promise to the wicked. The question that I want you to think about today is, am I blessed or am I wicked? Now, let's take a look at the first couple of verses there that we have in Psalm 1. Um, The first thing that the psalmist writes is, blessed is the man. And he starts, you know, he kind of catches your attention, right? I mean, if if you're thinking about it, you you want to be that blessed man, right? You, you, You don't want to be something other than you want to be the blessed man. But he follows it up by saying, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. He follows it up with a set of negatives of what the blessed man is not, right? Now, at first glance, it can look like what, what the psalmist is doing is he is, is showing us a progression, right? He's showing us a progression of one who walks, he maybe kind of walks by, and then maybe one who decides he's going to you know, maybe stand for a little bit, and then maybe he's going to take a seat and just sit with these people. But I think that the point is, is not necessarily that there's a progression that's going on, as much as it is that the psalmist is lumping all of these people together. The psalmist is saying that all of these people are the same. And he, he gives a, a term that's used, that last term there, scoffer, which is really kind of reserved uh, for those who would mock true religion, who would mock the religion of the Israelites. And he sort of reserves that as last. And he says, all of these people, they are those. They are the scoffer. They are the ones who scorn God. The scoffer and the scorner are not blessed. But verse 2 provides us with the positive characteristics of the blessed man. It says, But his delight, the blessed man, is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The blessed man does not do these previous things, He does not scoff at true religion. He does not scorn God. Rather, he delights in his law. He delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. And this phrase actually harkens us back to 
Joshua 1, 8, at the beginning of the book of Joshua, and it's actually printed on the front of your bulletins there. And I'm going to go back real quick and read through uh, what the Lord says to Joshua here. He says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. The psalmist harkens back to a time in in redemptive history in which sort of the reins of the people of God is being transferred into Joshua's hands from Moses. Moses is passing away and is kind of being given over to Joshua. And, and you can... You know, you can kind of imagine, right, if you've been under the leadership of somebody for so long, maybe in your job, and then all of a sudden things sort of change, it can be a nervous time. It can be nerve-wracking, can it? But Joshua tells, but not Joshua, the Lord tells Joshua, he's going to be with him wherever he is. He's going to be with him. Have confidence in me. It connects us back to Moses and the law, back in Exodus 20, which we've talked about a bit And it ultimately connects us back to the Abrahamic covenant that we see in Genesis chapter 12 as Moses is a part and the law is a part of the fulfillment of that. Not to full fruition, but a part of that fulfillment. And so the one who is blessed is the one who loves the law of the Lord. And if you remember the Abrahamic covenant, God says, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to others. So delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night is much bigger than that phrase sounds, right? It's much bigger. Have you ever been around someone who just loves what he or she does? There's kind of two people that I can think of, and they're at the opposite ends of the spectrum. One was my grandfather, uh, my papa. And uh, while I was alive, he uh, he was a cabinet maker. Uh, before I was alive, he was he was a mechanic. But I can remember as a child going uh, to his cabinet shop where he where he would work, and watching him work, and just being around him, and looking just at the sheer joy on his face that he would have the opportunity to work with his hands and to build something and to to contribute and help people out. And I, I can remember many times at the at the end of the day, especially on Fridays. He and my uncle worked together, and they would have some buddies that would come up, and they would just hang out after work and have a good time, obviously just delighting in what they do and in delighting in one another as well. The other person that I think of is my son, Judah, who's 18 months old. And oftentimes we can see real, genuine, and true delight in children. And what I think about uh, when I think about him and delight is his relationship with the people around him. He's so excited to see his mom in the morning and to see me in the morning and to see his mama and his sister. But there's one person in his life that just trumps it all. And it's my dad. It's his, it's his pop-pop. That's what, he, that, that's what he calls him. And you should see the look of just sheer delight on his face when he gets to see his pop-pop. When Pop-Pop comes home from work, it's like he, he wants to jump out of his skin. He can't move fast enough to get to him. He just really, genuinely, and truly delights in his Pop-Pop. 
It's as though he meditates on him day and night. <laughs> He's all that he thinks about. Those are pictures that I see that reminds me of how the blessed man is being described here. He is someone who delights in his heavenly Father and seeks to do his will day and night. But what exactly does that mean for you? I mean, that's, that, that, that's all good and well, but, but what does that mean when the, when the rubber meets the road? Well, I think that one thing that shows us that we delight in the law of the Lord is that we delight in what we do with our lives, and we recognize that God delights in what we do with our lives. Are you a doctor? If so, do you delight that the Lord has given you the capability to identify sickness in people's lives? And to do something to contribute to healing their bodies? Or do you take it for granted that God has blessed you in this way? And with these set of skills? Do you work in a restaurant? Are you you a server? Or do you work in, in some other kind of restaurant, in some other kind of capacity? Do you delight that the Lord has given you the context to interact with people? And help them in, in feeding their families? Do you delight that the Lord has given you the the space to talk to people and get to see people with their children and give them encouragement about that? I can't tell you how many times that that, that we'll go out to eat and and a waiter or a waitress will say something about how sweet our children are or how sweet our family is and what an encouragement that means to us. Or do you see your job as a hassle? And it's just a way for you to make some money so that you, you can pay the bills. Are you an engineer? Do you delight that the Lord has blessed you with a set of skills that allows you to have insight on how things work? Do you give God the glory for the gifts He's given you? Do you gently and carefully explain what it is that you do to people? Or do you blow them off because it's frustrating to you that they can't see things the way that you see things. God has given us so much to delight in. And the thing that He's ultimately given us to delight in is His Son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross that we may truly delight in God. So where do you find your delight? Where is it that you go to find your delight? Is it in the Lord? Is it in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Or is it in something else? What else do we notice that the psalmist writes about the the blessed and the wicked? Take a look at verses 3 and 4 with me. Speaking of the blessed man, the psalmist says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The author of this psalm, he begins with this sort of agricultural simile, doesn't he? He starts talking about blessing and wickedness in terms of farming. Well, that's all well and good, uh, but what in the world does it mean? How, how, do we, how do we look at this and we unpack this a little bit? Well, I think to get the full force uh, of this agricultural simile, we need to consider the agricultural implications for those people in that time. You see, Israel is a country that has a wet season and a dry season. And obviously in the wet season, it rains an awful lot. And in the dry season, you don't see much, if any, rain at all. 
Well, it just so happens that the time when crops become ripe and ready to be harvested is right in the middle of the dry season. And so oftentimes you can lose a lot of those crops. So to be a tree planted near water would have been the best that it could possibly be. It would have had a source to draw upon that during those really dry months they wouldn't have been getting rain, right? And so to be a tree planted by water means that you have a water source to grow and to grow you that's, that's right there. It would have been a huge blessing if you had land that had water on it and your fruit trees were right there at the water. It would have been a huge blessing. And, as the psalmist says, in all that he does, he prospers. So he's comparing this blessed man, the one who delights in the law of the Lord, is like a tree that's planted by water. And that water is the law of the Lord. It nourishes him. It encourages him. It strengthens him. What about the wicked? What about the wicked? The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. See, the wicked, they're not like the tree planted by the water. They're the chaff that gets driven away. Have any of you worked on a farm in here? No farmers, okay. Me either, it's okay. Our, our Clemson grads back there in the back, they know farming. <laughs> um, well, the way harvest time works, like if, you, if you've ever seen like wheat or um, millet, there's a lot of millet around right now, is one of the things that comes to mind. What they do when they harvest is they bring it in and they have this thing called a threshing floor. And they thresh the wheat or they thresh the millet or whatever, and the grain, the kernels, they pop out and they fall to the bottom of the threshing floor. And then you're able to gather that up and you're able to keep it. But through the process of beating those grains out, there's chaff that's really light and really airy and really fluffy and it sort of flies off of the stalk of whatever it is that you're getting grain for. And the wind takes it and it blows it away. The farmer can't use the chaff. The chaff is no good to the farmer. And so the chaff is worthless. That's what's being said about the wicked here. The wicked are like the chaff that gets caught by the wind and blows away, and it never has any use whatsoever. Well, at this point, you kind of get the idea, the feeling that the author doesn't really think very highly of the wicked or the sinner. He uses several different terms to describe him. And it actually does get even worse for them. In verses 5 and 6, we see the author says, Therefore the, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He uses all this imagery of kind of like a marketplace sort of setting where people walk and then they stand and then they sit. And then he uses this agricultural Im imagery. And then he gets to the point where he says, therefore. In verses 5 and 6, we get this kind of ultimate end sort of language about the destiny of the wicked and the destiny of the righteous, ultimately speaking, not just right here and now. 
Verse 5 starts with therefore, which keys us in that he's going to give us the results of what will happen to the wicked. First, we see the fate of the wicked is not very pretty at all, is it? They will not stand in the judgment, nor will sinners stand in the congregation of the righteous. Now this is not just talking about some sort of temporal judgment, like we said. This is it's referring to a final judgment that we see. That's why, that, that's why it's, it's really beautiful to see that the, the book of the Psalms opens up with this psalm. Because it has this ultimate end to things. How do we know they'll be separated from the Lord? How do we know that? Well, we see this in that the Lord identifies himself with the way of the righteous in verse 6 while at the same time separating himself from the way of the wicked. The wicked will not be able to stand in the judgment. The sinners will not be able to be in the congregation of the righteous. And it's not as though though God has abandoned them. That's not the case. The reason that this is the way that it is, the reason that the wicked do not stand in the judgment, is because ultimately at the end of the day, That's what they want. They want to scorn God. They want to scorn true religion. And so it's not as though they're getting something that they don't deserve, as it were. No, that's what they want. That's what they seek after. They seek to scorn God and and, and to scorn His law. And so, in return, they won't stand in the judgment. And sinners won't be in the congregation of the righteous. And the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous for how He relates to the righteous. Now it says here, no, which can give you the indication that it's just sort of like this assent, like to just have knowledge of something. But that's not, that's not the implications of the word no here. The implications of the word no here is, is as if, not as if, it really is, that God is actively on the side of the righteous. He is actively participating on behalf of the righteous. That's what's going on here. He actively takes the side of the righteous and even protects the righteous. But the Lord's protection does not extend to the wicked because they will perish. This passage certainly carries an ultimate end sense to it. That's why the writers of the New Testament make reference to this particular psalm. You see, ultimately, the way that God shows himself to be on the side of the righteous is by coming to earth and becoming man in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The implication is that the righteous will stand in the judgment. But the only way that the righteous will be able to stand in the judgment is because God is on their side. The only way that they can stand is if they're in Christ. The ultimate fulfillment of this blessed man, the embodiment of this blessed man. The only way that we are able to stand in the ultimate judgment is because we have union with Christ. And we are called sons and daughters of the living God through His finished work. The ultimate end for the wicked is not the same. You see, they won't stand in the judgment. And the reason that they won't stand is because they have rejected Jesus. They have rejected that God has revealed Himself fully in Jesus Christ. 
It's because they've rejected that the only way to have a right relationship to God and to fellow man is through placing their faith in Jesus Christ and repenting of their sins. The wicked fail to do this, and because of that, God is not on their side. And they will not stand in the judgment. But they don't want it either, as we said earlier. Now, maybe you're here and you're thinking, wait a second, I'm a sinner. So, is this talking about me here? Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But I would say that for those who are in Jesus Christ, the law has been fulfilled for you on your behalf. Place your faith and trust in Him and in Him alone. And that is how God is on your side. But maybe you're here and that's not something that you want. If that's the case, there's a really strong warning from Scripture here. That at the end of the day, you won't stand in the judgment. But what are the, you know, what are the implications of that? We'll get to that in a minute. But keep that question in mind. You know, J.K. Rowling does a wonderful job of illustrating this, this final judgment, this ultimate end in her last Harry Potter book, The Deathly Hollows. At the end of this book, Harry's fighting to defeat Lord Voldemort and restore goodness to their world. And if you haven't read it, close your ears. Sorry. <laughs> but we see that Harry, he doesn't make it. Harry actually, Harry actually dies. But this isn't Harry's end. He goes through the judgment of death, and we see it in this scene that he has um, with Dumbledore. Harry goes through the judgment of death and actually passes back into life. In essence, he's defeated death. And it no longer has any, any power over him. It no longer has any hold on him. However, the same cannot be said of Lord Voldemort. He does not defeat death. Instead, Voldemort is defeated by Harry. And Rowling even uses the language of love here to speak of Harry's overcoming death. That is, that love is what kills Voldemort, who is the embodiment of wickedness and evil, and at the end of the day, love destroys wickedness. Therefore, Voldemort is subject to the judgment of death, and he perishes, never being able to stand with those who stand for good, or you even might say, righteousness. But Harry, on the other hand, Harry has life. He has life because he sought what is good and true, which is genuine love. In 1 John chapter 4, this is, this is what the Apostle John says about love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
That word propitiation there, what it means is that not only did Jesus take the penalty of our sins, but He also gave us His righteousness in place of that penalty. And so, we are counted as the righteous because of what God has done for us. And it fits too with redemptive history as well, even in this psalm. If you think about the beginning of Exodus and the people of Israel who are enslaved and are in bondage to the Egyptians, and what happens first before God even gives them His law? He saves them. He brings them out of slavery. And then He gives them His law. Then He shows them, this is how you are to worship Me. We can't do enough good things to attain righteousness. That's what the story of Scripture tells us. No, God redeems us and gives us His righteousness. And then, then we can delight in the law of the Lord. And we can delight in the law of the Lord because Jesus has fulfilled the law. Well, what can we say about how to apply this psalm to our lives? First, I want us to take, uh, take a look at, at kind of the, the corporate nature of this, of this psalm. Because as we said earlier, this is something that the people of God would have sang with one another in corporate worship. So we must recognize that this psalm applies to the corporate people of God first. And then it applies to us individually. And we'll take a look at both. For Israel, it would have served as a means of kind of forging a bond between one another as they sang this song together, giving them a desire to want to be like the blessed man that is described in this psalm. Again, not because they can somehow attain being blessed, but because of what God has already done for them. What else would it have said? It seems that there are those in the midst of the people of God who are actually wicked sinners and scoffers. The ultimate apostasy is to take scorn at the true religion of a loving God and reject His law as the one described in the psalm. So there's a warning there. You may think yourself a part of the people of God here. You may think yourself a part of Israel. But if you're one of these people that is mocking true religion, that is scorning true religion, you really are not a part of the people of God. So as those who are the people of God, but not directly in this context, this particular one, what does it mean to us? What's it mean to us? Well, I think that we can make a good connection with the people of Israel because reading and singing this psalm, as we have already done, gives us a sense of what it is, of what is pleasing to the Lord and what is not pleasing to the Lord. The ideal blessed man that is described here has been embodied in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we must look to our union with Him and realize that we really can delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. Because of what Jesus has done, we are no longer slaves to our sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. We are counted as the righteous. We are sinners no more. We are those who are blessed by the Lord and those who are counted among the righteous. Really believe that. We are. Now connecting also with Old Testament Israel, there's a very real reality that in our congregations, 
there are those who don't have the ability to delight in the law of the Lord because their eyes have not been opened to their sin. If you think that's you, this psalm invites you to grab a hold of the grace of God and no longer be slave to your sin, but through Jesus Christ you can be counted among the righteous and you too can delight in the law of a loving God who's on your side day and night. I beg upon each of you to, to embrace the work of Christ so that you will not be among the wicked and the sinner in the day of judgment and perish. God does not want us to perish. He doesn't want that for us. He desires that we stand with Him in righteousness, justice, mercy, grace, and love. But as those who live on this side of the cross, we see the fulfillment of the promise made here in verses 5 and 6 in our King, Jesus. We have an ultimate promise in Jesus. We have the promise that we will stand in the judgment. But we still struggle, don't we? We still have sin in our lives, don't we? That promise has not been ultimately fulfilled. It has not ultimately come to fruition. We are in this state of an already not yet kind of thing. Christ's work is a finished work and it promises us of a future eternity of glory. But we currently don't experience that all the time, do we? There are those of us here who are struggling. Maybe you're here and you've you've gone through a divorce or you're going through a divorce. Maybe you're here and you struggle with depression. And there are days when as bad as you might want to, you just can't get out of your head that everything is hopeless. Maybe you're here and you have a catastrophic illness or you know someone who does. Maybe you're here and you've been trying to get a job for over a year and you still haven't been able to get it. Maybe you're here and you're stuck in the job that you have, hating it. But you hang on because you have to, because of the uncertainty of our current economic conditions. You see, the promise that we receive in Jesus is that there will be a day when these struggles will be no more. There will be a day when the tragedy of your divorce that has brought so many tears to you and maybe to your children will be no more. Because the Lord Jesus will wipe away those tears. There will be a day when the grip of depression will be no more instead of feeling disparity and hopelessness. All you will feel is joy and hope. There will be a day when the diseases of this world will cease to be and we will have no more disease. There will be a day when our jobs will not have the grip on us that they do. Because we will be with the Lord doing exactly what He wants us to do, which will be exactly what we want to do. The promise is that there is coming a day. That is the reason that the New Testament writers write about this in every single one of their letters. There is coming a day when all of the the pain, the suffering, the evil, everything in this world will be no more. And that's the promise that we have. 
That is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And that is why we pray, Jesus, come. Don't tarry. We want a world in which we don't have to struggle with these things anymore. We want that. But in the meantime, the Lord has seen fit to give us His Holy Spirit to encourage us. And the Lord has seen fit to put us in a community of believers to encourage one another. And when you feel down and you feel in the dumps, you can call a friend and they can remind you of the promises of God. When you're struggling because you still haven't gotten that job, you can call a friend and they can remind you of the ultimate hope that you have. When you're going through sickness and disease, you have loved ones who are going through those things. You can call someone. You can be with someone to help you through that. Not to be a fixer for you, but just to be there with you. So, the question still remains. Are you counted as the blessed? Or are you counted as the wicked? I would beg upon you to desire and want to be a part of those who are blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You that He is our promise. I pray that everyone here, Lord, would would grasp onto Him and hold onto Him and hold on to His righteousness. Lord, we thank You for Your promises. And we do pray, Lord, that You would bring swiftly a day in which we will not struggle with sin anymore. In the day in which you will wipe every tear from our eye. In the day in which death will be no more. We ask these things in Jesus' name.